Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast dedicated to all things active travel. I'm Laura Laker. I'm Ned Bolting. And I'm Adam Tranter. And this week, we are tackling the controversial issue of free hospital parking. Uh, but before that, let's get on to the lighter topic of residential animosity to bike lanes, because this week, Adam <laughs> has been polling the people of the UK on cycle lanes and made some interesting discoveries. Do you want to tell us about that first, Adam? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, this is on behalf of the the Bike Is Best campaign, which is a, a combination of the, the the industry and also a lot of the organisations um, uh, in, interested and involved in uh, cycling advocacy. And uh, I'd noticed like a, a narrative we saw the Alliance of British Drivers putting forward a, a story to the Telegraph, who who, who took it on, um, basically that they were intending to launch a legal challenge to the uh, to the low traffic neighbourhoods. In, in Lewisham, um, describing them as uh, unlawful, and there's been a narrative where I am as well that that um, the, you know measures of cycling and walking aren't um, aren't welcome, uh, and that that sort of wasn't what I thought was the case. And I you know I'm in a bubble, so I wanted to try and find out a little bit more about that. So we 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 um, hired a YouGov and an independent polling company and also working with Dr. Ian Walker, who we had on on um, episode two of our podcast um, to, to analyze the data. And we found that um, measures to support cycling and walking were supported by six and a half people uh, for every one person uh, against those measures. Um, so really that's, you know, that's been quite powerful because we're, you know, the, the, the conversation that's now being had is, we need to listen to the silent majority of, uh, of people who actually, you know, the interested but concerned group of people who want to ride their bikes and they have been riding their bikes during lockdown. And now that kind of 
that opportunity has been taken away from them because of inaction or because of a small group of you know motor lobbyists or or or, um, or, or a few residents. And um, really, this is all getting, as we've talked about in other podcasts, this is all being won and lost uh, in local authorities. You know, it really requires. We've spoken to a couple of the people uh, on our podcast um, who have, uh, like Wasim Zaffer in Birmingham and Adam Clark from Leicester, who have real control of their brief and are going to push things through because they believe it's the right thing to do and they want to be judged over a four-year term. But most of the country, uh, the local authorities, it's it's really down to how many angry people shouted at me this week. Um, and the hopefully this data will, will will change a little bit of the narrative and and um you know give local politicians the the kind of um yeah the confidence to to enact measures for the for the vast majority of people uh who want them and just to just to kind of um finish up on the on this on the survey another thing that was really really interesting that that ian walker and if you've listened to episode two you'll You'll know um, just how uh, how knowledgeable this chap is about um, about psychology, especially relating to to active travel. And he discovered, you know, a form of um, it's called pluralistic ignorance. Um, and really, that is the notion that um, most people agree that Britain would be a better place if more people cycled, but they assume that when they'd ask their friends or they ask the general public that there would be much less support than their own individual support. And this is again, like a narrative that you assume that no one agrees with you. So you kind of keep quiet. Um, and we found again that, you know, um, when we asked if uh, Britain would be a better, if we asked if when Britain would be a better place, we got 3.26 agree to everyone who disagrees. Uh, but when we got to the general public, that, that figure was half, you know, it's 1.74 for everyone who disagrees. So really, um, the, the further you go away from your own view, you assume that people don't agree with you. And this data is, is clearly showing that that's, uh, that's not the case. Well, Adam, were you surprised by the results that came back in your survey? I must admit, I was quite surprised. That, that's one question I have for you. And I suppose the, the other question, just to sort of allay some of the potential scepticism or the fears about the validity of this survey is what kind of questions were people having to answer? And were they, you know, could you accuse any of the questions of being leading questions? Yeah. So I think, um, no, no is the answer to that. Um, you, you govern the, the, the way that it's done is, is, um, is an independent polling firm. Um, you know, they, they were the ones that, um, managed to somehow predict, um, Theresa May's general election, um, results and, and, you know, quite, quite a well-respected, um, polling company. And they have to approve, you know, our questions and they have to go through their independent data team to make sure that we're not, um, we're, we're not leading. Um, and for example, I asked a question of, would you be more likely to vote for a political candidate if they supported cycling and walking? And they wouldn't allow that question in because they felt that, um, the choice of people's politics is much more comprehensive than one, you know, one topic. Um, and they felt that that would be too simplistic. So they, you know, that was something that I would have liked to know, but they, you know, they, they kicked out basically. And I guess in terms of, um, you know, I've, I've had my, as of you, Ned, I've had my Twitter feed, uh, 
totally pummeled for the last 24 hours. Um, and, uh, that's, um, you know, with, with accusations that this was a poll of 2000 cyclists, um, and it was just full of middle-class bike riders. And of course they're going to say that, uh, and that's not, not the case at all. Uh, you know, questions were things like, um, how much would you agree with? I think Britain would be a better place if more people cycled, you know, and, and they can do the, the five point score of agree, strongly agree, neither disagree or agree and strongly disagree and disagree. Um, or they can say they don't know as well. Um, so, so really, um, these questions are, are, are pretty, uh, are pretty valid, uh, we feel and would, would stand up to, to, to scrutiny. The other kind of things that we've had is, um, uh, about the kind of middle class thing. Um, you know, we had, um, we had a, a quite a large portion of, um, people, uh, 40% were from the C to D E social grade. So weren't the ABC one that people assume that, uh, cyclists are, which, which, which there's no real evidence for that. Um, and also these people, only 5% of them, 5% of the respondents cycle to, 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 um, to work in this case, you know, uh, 30, 41% of the respondents were car drivers. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think any of that stuff's uh, true and it all stands up. So I'm really pleased. And I was sort of surprised because we've, you know, and I'm, as a media person, I'm, guilty of this because I read so much and I look at so much and, and I'm constantly being asked to work on stories or work on something that's, that's, you know, trying to, um, be about bike lash and, and stuff like that. And, and this allowed us to step outside a little bit, but it was surprising because so much of the narrative is weighted against changing the, the status quo. And this isn't a new phenomenon, actually, because uh, poll after poll has shown that people support cycle lanes. Uh, Sustrans does an annual report called Bike Life, and um, they poll people in different towns around the country, different cities around the country. And they always find that more people than not, like far more people than not, support cycling infrastructure. And um, and people often support giving space to cycling, even when it means slower journeys for motor traffic, including themselves. So it's, it's definitely not a, not a new thing. Um, but it is, it's super useful to have because obviously the people that we hear from are, are the ones that are uh, worried and scared and, and, you know, kicking up a fuss. I'm curious why the association of British drivers is uh, worried about Lewisham. Maybe one of their members lives there or I don't know. People are always scared of change though, aren't they? It's just a natural, um, it's just a natural human phenomenon. I've been listening to an audio book, what seems to be the problem with Adam Kay and Mark Watson. And, um, they were saying that, um, there's quite a famous story about mid, um, midwifery in this sort of, I think it was Victorian times and how, um, there were two different wards. One was like the doctors coming in from doing autopsies, uh, and loads of women were dying on that maternity ward. And then the other one was a sort of midwife led ward. And the women were surviving, and this guy worked out, Semmelweis worked out that if you if doctors wash their hands, or oh, he suggested that people wash their hands between doing autopsies and and uh, and delivering babies, and the the death rate dropped dramatically. And these doctors didn't like the implication that um, that they had been the cause of all these women's deaths, and so they sort of stopped washing their hands and went back to the to the way things were before. And it just just seemed, you know, it's it's in a way it's human nature. Even when something's uh, good for us, we don't like change. We don't like to think that we are maybe the problem or that some of our behaviour is the problem. Yeah, I mean. Just to play, I suppose, Adam, as you rightly point out, both of our 
Twitter feeds have been taken over by an endlessly depressing uh, culture war debate, if you can even call it that, over the last <laughs> 48 hours. I'm ignorant to this. <laughs> it's been, I mean, I have to say on, on, on both sides, actually, I think there've been some pretty unhelpful contributions from yeah. uh, cyc- the cycling lobby as well, and some insults thrown around that simply have no place in the in the conversation. Um, and so, I, I, I don't think it's um, I don't think the right is all on one side in, in that respect mm. at all. And 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 I do think you know I've tried to actually blank the 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 churn of the debate out, but I have from time to time sort of stopped, and a lot of the objections uh, uh, gave me pause for thought at, at the very least. Um, and they're probably things that other people are, are, are maybe listening to this podcast are concerned about or would like to know how to address when they're raised as objections. Um, you know, what, one of them is, uh, one of them is, uh, access to, uh, quietened traffic neighborhoods for disabled people who have to rely on motorized transport, which I think is quite a good point that certainly needs consideration. Um, you know, I've, I've been raising this whole idea about uh, um, uh, emergency access as well, which seems to be uh-huh. uh, still a little bit unresolved in, to some extent. And the other thing is, do we need to be honest or a bit more honest about the fact that um, these schemes can lead to, potentially can lead to uh, increased journey times, and they probably can lead to increased uh-huh. congestion around them? Um, which seems to be the primary uh, objection in most people's eyes. Are those things not true? I mean, it's it's true if you're talking about car journeys, but I guess the point here is to is to shift journeys away from car and onto other modes. And you know, uh, Stevenage is the classic example of where there's been a, a bike network built, and it's a pretty good bike network, but people don't use it because it's so easy to drive, and there's these you know wide dual carriageways everywhere. Um, and so if we really want to get people out of their cars and onto other modes, it has to be the most attractive option. Um, in terms of disabled access, I think there's an assumption that disabled people um, don't cycle. I, I've done um, quite a lot of reporting around um, Wheels for Wellbeing, the disabled cycling charity, um, uh, around their kind of work on this. And for, for like 75% of disabled people who cycle, it's cycling is easier than walking. And so making it easier to do that is uh, is actually kind of giving people more options. And there's also an assumption around disability um, that, you know, you have to be reliant on someone. And, and so much of our infrastructure, transport infrastructure, social infrastructure, websites are designed with, you know, the assumption that people are going to need help in some way. And that's not how most people with dis- disabilities want to live their lives. And I, I think that... The transport's a similar thing. You know, disabled people don't necessarily want to be getting taxis. They're really expensive. Um, yeah, there's definitely an option for more cycling and walking. And also, you know, if you have cut-throughs on your residential streets, then um, it's it's less friendly for older people. Um, being able mm. to cross the street is a genuine fear for people who are older and frailer. Um, if there's like fast running traffic through your neighborhood, then you're less likely to go out. You're more likely to be isolated um, as well. You're less likely to know your neighbors. There's a huge amount of issues. So I think, you know, although it's going to be... Um, detrimental to car journeys if the, you know that's not our our kind of objective here to to make car journeys uh, faster and easier it's it's to get people walking and cycling and to kind of change that culture mm. we have to be i think we have to be really um honest as you say ned with uh with the fact that car journeys are going to get slower um and we need to be bold as a society to kind of acknowledge that we cannot continue um with the way things were um and i know that 
you know, I think that any resident concerns that there are, I think, you know, are, um, need to be well, well thought about and, and talked about and consultation, you know, is really important. And one of my big frustrations is bit that, you know, consultation, however you do it, you know, typically doing it before you do something, but in current times doing it. And then the consultation period is afterwards. That really hasn't been communicated well. There's, um, Chris Borman, that communicates it well, like he does with most things and calls it, you know, this is our opportunity to try before you buy. And this is an opportunity to see if our, if our towns and cities are going to be better places because of that. And I've not heard a council kind of come across, um, and, and, and say that. And the other kind of, um, point that I'd like to make and about, you know, if we assume that driving has to get more difficult because of all the things that that relate and harms that relate to driving, including with the climate and air pollution. Um, you're seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of pushback, not from residents, but from, you know, from groups that I'd say that are all of a sudden, I think it can be quite disrespectful in some cases, all of a sudden very concerned about the needs of disabled people, but they've not been... Um, they've not been fighting for pavement parking banning, for example, which is, again, a blight on um, a lot of people's mobility in their residential area. And the, the really important thing about low traffic neighbourhoods is where nobody is having their access removed. And if I try and explain to people that if more people cycle, then if you have to drive, it's going to it's going to be a probably a more pleasant experience for you because all of the people, you know, Wasim was saying the other week on our podcast that there's something like 300,000 journeys every single day under one mile by car. Um, we need to get uh, those journeys changed mode. And then people who really need to use their car, people with mobility issues, people who are reliant on their car because they are disabled or for any other reason uh, or for their job or any of those things can have a better experience. They might need to go a slightly longer way around. They might even have to go two minutes extra, five minutes extra. And that that's, you know, quite plausibly going to be the case, but their needs, you know, the needs of residents, most residents to drive is not more important than the whole community's right to clean air or to not be plowed over by, by cars and stuff like that. So that's my, my point of view, but I think Ned, it's really important that we um, are aware that there needs to be um, a, conversation and a, and a dialogue that's mature and not shouty and that people have concerns and they're genuine concerns and we need to be better at educating uh, as well. I mean, I do think it's, it's tricky. And what you've just said in the, in the confines of this podcast, where we're broadly in agreement with one another, is probably sayable on this podcast, but it's very difficult to say out loud in the wider debate, you know, to, to, to have that kind of, that degree of honesty, I, I've not heard it expressed in that sense, you know, that, that, that there, there is a, there is an aspect of this debate, which does penalize the car driver. Mm. Yeah. Social media is famously not nuanced, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And yet, and yet there is a risk that, you know, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't say that out loud, you you're over promising, you know, and, and it sort of undermines the credibility of your argument. If you say, if you say, that we're going to create these wonderful low traffic neighbourhoods and nothing is going to, you know, change f to the detriment yeah. of the experience of the car It's driver. a good point. It's definitely a good because point. Because it's not, it's not true, is it? It's, I mean, we're into sort of Brexit territory here. We can <laughs> leave the single, you know, the single market and it'll all be fine as if, if we hadn't left the single market, you know. So, so I think, I think that's a quite a, 
it, it strikes me as a problem with our messaging and I don't have a, a solution to it, but I've just identified a slight discomfort I have with it. Yeah. Yes. yeah it's anyway. a good point. It's a good point, Ned. Um, yeah. So, so um, yes, on to a less controversial topic, um, uh, hospital, uh, free hospital car parking. <laughs> uh, with us today, we have uh, Peter Walker um, to talk about hospital car parking, which is a bit of a political hot potato that comes around fairly regularly. Um, it's once again in the news because in case you didn't know, it was made free for NHS staff during the coronavirus crisis. And now people are asking whether and when it should be chargeable again. Now, Peter Walker, as I'm sure our listeners know, is a Guardian political correspondent. He's a regular on the bike blog, author of Bike Nation, How Cycling Can Save the World. And are we right in saying, Peter, that hospital car parking is one of your niche special uh, special areas of, of interest slash expertise? It's, it's a very niche interest <laughs> and it's one that, you know, I liken it to kind of, you know, discussing it on social media, talking about the Middle East peace process without the kind of, you know, mutual understanding and desire to see other people's point of view and things like that. It's, 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 it's something I don't really get into very often because it always creates this kind of horrible <laughs> comeback. <laughs> well, thanks I, for coming I, on I, to I, talk about it, Peter. <laughs> yeah, I think, okay. Peter, I think you are... Uh, the only person in the world who uh, has expressed this opinion out loud, and I credit you enormously for that. I, I think it was, <laughs> I think you wrote a, I think you wrote a piece. Was it a couple of years ago when you first kind of went public with these strange views that you hold? Um, <laughs> <laughs> this, um, was, this was when Labour under Jeremy Corbyn and the Daily Mirror were basically saying that all um, hospital car parking should be free for all staff, all visitors, basically anyone who goes there. And the only point I was making is that this is more complicated than it, than, it, than it looks, that people might say, you know, obviously it's the right thing to do. And, you know, the comeback I always get is people say, you know, I went to visit my parent with cancer and I had to spend £15 every time I had to scrabble for change. Do you want me to do that? And the obvious answer is, is, is no, you know, in hospital car parking in some places really doesn't work very well. But the thing is, it just would not work. I mean, even the current thing that, that Labour are pushing the government to provide free car parking for every staff member. NHS England has got a more than a million full-time people. There's simply not enough car parks. And, you know, for example, I live in South East London and the uh, hospital down the road from me, King's, has got a car park with maybe 40, 50 spaces in. There's absolutely no way you can provide car parking for even... 5% of the people who work there. So if you accept the fact there has to be rationing of some form, then, you know, the whole idea of universal car parking is completely pointless. But, but then it goes on, people just get very angry very, very quickly. <laughs> and it, it, um, it does, it seems to be back of the cards. In the, apparently the um, current health minister, Edward Argar, um, said that the government wants to make good in its promise of free hospital parking for disabled people, frequent outpatient attendees, parents of sick children who are staying overnight and night shift workers. So would that be a sort of sensible approach if you, and how would you even kind of assess who's, who's who and well, I think it's fine. I mean, you know, if you accept there has to be rationing, because because the thing is also the other comeback I always get is people say, you know, I'm a junior doctor. I have to go from, you know, place to place. I work at a different place every week. They're often 20, 30 miles away. You know, I can't ride a bike. You think people should be able to ride a bike everywhere. And I'm not saying that, obviously, even in a position like that, if you're a junior doctor starting at shift at six in the morning or working till midnight or something like that, 
then having a place to park is a useful thing. It's just the idea of universalism. I think this idea of promising it for everyone is completely stupid and it's just not going to work. So I don't think people should pretend that it can be done. And if you accept there has to be some kind of rationing somewhere, then you have to get on this debate of, okay, who are the people who need it? And the other thing I get into too is this idea of free parking. You know, I have a wider and particularly niche interest in the uh, economics of parking and why people expect parking to be free or cheap. And, you know, the statistics show that people who own and drive cars are disproportionately more likely to be richer. You know, obviously not everyone who drives a car is rich and transport poverty of people being forced to drive because they've got nothing else, you know, no other way of getting around is a real uh, issue. But if you give free car parking to staff members, it's a subsidy that people who say get there on the bus or, you know, hospital visitor who has to get there in a cab won't get. So you have to decide why you're subsidizing this particular group and not uh, other groups. My um my uh my local hospital, the University Hospital Coventry in Warwickshire, um uh has uh has just passed a passed planning actually to build a new mega car park. And if you look at the um uh, if you look at the satellite view on Google, the 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 hospital is kind of looks like a uh, almost a shed compared to the amount of car parking that there, there there is now. And yes, we're getting bike parking as 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 part of that. But I was contacted by a junior doctor in that hospital um, through the kind of bicycle mare stuff that I do, and um, she said that she wanted to cycle. She only lived about three miles away, but that she you know, she, she didn't feel safe to do so, um, and she was being you know felt penalised. And also that the buses for her shifts had stopped by then. So she had no other option um, and she doesn't have a car. So we actually got into this real perverse situation where I was going to um, lend her my car, which I rarely use so that she could drive to work and get a 10 pound rebate for driving to work um, and parking for free when she had a bike and she wanted to use it. And eventually she found, you know, she cycles on the pavement effectively and on very quiet streets and, and, and things like that and goes a very long way around. And that for me, I think, you know, links to the, to the second point that you made really in that if we're going to offer something for free, um, then what about people who get the bus or what about people who need to, you know, want to ride bikes? How do we make it more accessible for those people? And of course that never makes it into the conversation at all, does it, Peter? Well, it doesn't because there is this issue that the moment you start talking about kind of transport, then it's always the interests of the car drivers that gets kind of talked about most of all. So, you know, I mean, to Jeremy Corbyn's credit, he did use an entire premises questions to devoted to kind of local buses, which people, you know, at senior political level hadn't thought about for quite a long time. But a lot of this stuff, there is this big campaign. There was, you know, a Daily Mirror campaign to have free parking. And, you know, everyone says, obviously, yes, it'd be great if you had kind of cheap or free or very good public transport. But people don't really talk about it in the same way. There's not the same media fuss made. Um, and it's just the interests of drivers, and particularly there's this kind of totemic attachment to parking. People see it as this kind of human right. Um, and, and the voices of the people who drive become louder and louder. And as I say, those are the ones who are disproportionately richer. And it means this kind of wider debate about transport poverty and how people get around is never really thought about properly. But yes, I mean, in terms of debating things on Twitter, I would advise you to never, ever go against the orthodox <laughs> on Twitter because you'll spend the rest of the day kind of having to bat people back. 
and you know basically say no i don't want people who are you know with stage four cancer having to kind of struggle with 50 p's in parking meters and stuff like that that's not what i'm saying um, uh, yeah, and, and like you say, tr- uh, hospitals are ultimately at the mercy, like all of us, of the wider transport mix. And if ultimately, if the streets around the hospitals are uh, uh, not good for cycling, or there isn't a bus service, then then there's like there's few options, and then it becomes this focus outside the hospital gates, where everyone's like, "Well, how do we get here?" It's not really the hospital's fault or problem, really, is it? My sister's a nurse; she was working in. Uh, Taunton for a while in uh, um, one of the hospitals there and she um, tried to use the park and ride and there's a bike lane from the park and ride but it shuts at 6pm and um, it's <laughs> like well how how is anyone supposed to and I think a lot of the local bus services also stop at around 6pm and unless you're finishing work and like running off or if you work shifts then it's impossible you kind of have to drive um, so yeah it's 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 really a sort of much wider problem isn't it that, that becomes acute at the hospital gates we well, do have this thing that a lot of uh, hospitals when in town hospitals were kind of knocked down and bigger ones built they were often done on the kind of out of town shopping center model they'd be at the edge of a ring road with a few roundabouts and stuff like that and there might be as you say a dedicated bus service that goes once every 20 minutes stops at 6 p.m and if you want to cycle you have to go on a big road so in many ways people don't really have a choice you know and i'm not saying that everybody should be forced to walk or cycle you know, if they're visiting someone or if they're a nurse or a doctor or stuff like that, it's just no one thinks about what the um, alternatives are. And it's the same thing. It's just it's just parking becomes this debate which dominates everything. So, you know, the street where I, where I live, the kind of South East London borough where I live, about two thirds of uh, households don't have access to a car. So private car ownership is a minority thing. But even on the relatively quiet residential street where I live, there's parking for the most part on both sides of the roads. And that's space, you know, which is a subsidized private storage of personal property. It costs, you know, maybe a hundred or 200 pounds a year. You know, and if you went to one of those kind of commercial storage places, you know, one of those kind of big yellow or something like that and arrived with a box the size of a car and said, I want to store this for a year, you know, how much do you charge me? It's going to be about, I don't know, a thousand pounds or a few thousand pounds. But there is this idea that which I think comes from this kind of, you know, 50s, 60s mentality of kind of car uh, ownership, that people should be able to store their car on public land. And if you took away car parking, there'd be so much more space for pedestrians, for cyclists, just for kind of human life. Peter, um, I don't know what to say about the hospital parking thing other than you're right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you are so right. And yet you've got such a job on your hands convincing people, haven't you? Because on the one hand... (laughs) I don't want to go on about Brexit again, but I find myself doing it. On the one hand, you've got a slogan like, get it done, or free parking. And on the other hand, you've got a really nuanced and uh, detailed and correct uh, uh, counter-argument to present. So uh, good luck with that. Um, (laughs) Can I, actually, just before we leave that subject of King's College Hospital alone, here's a, a little random biographical detail from my life. When I was a student, long time ago, in the early 90s, I got a job uh, through a temping agency and I started that afternoon. I spent an entire summer working as a hospital porter in the operating theatres in King's College Hospital. Oh, and excellent. When, it was the most amazing job I've ever done. But when, And I did that for a couple of months and then that contract ran out and they said, but we can get you another job. At, it's only just occurred to me, at King's College Hospital. And guess what that job was? I had to sit in a little booth uh, raising and lowering the barrier of the staff mm. car park. Excellent. Uh, 
And I, I, I did it. I did it for a day and a half, and then I just walked off the job. <laughs> can I just can I just move it on because it's it's great to have you as a guest uh, on our podcast, Peter. Because there's so many sort of things that we can tap into your expertise on because you spend a lot of your time on a bike and campaigning on bike issues uh, very admirably. And the book you wrote was one of the best that's been written in that field, I think. Um, But also uh, you spend your life uh, trying to understand what's going on in Westminster. Um, (laughs) Yes, that's my day job. Yeah, that's your day job. Um, I noticed it was just a little detail um, that I kind of half caught my eye the other day that Andrew Gilligan, who of course worked with Johnson uh, when he was the mayor um, um, of London and he was a cycling czar and in in many ways responsible for some of the good things that have been put in place in London, uh, then moved to number 10 uh, to be uh, part of the the, the Johnson team there. But I read that he's now moving back to London, is that correct? And what, no, what, he's still going to be a number right. ten staffer, but he's been parachuted in as an extra Transport for London board member. Which I imagine all the Transport for London board members who thought they'd seen the last of him in twenty year twenty sixteen must be really pleased about. Because I mean, one of the reasons that he got a lot done in the second Johnson term, I mean, I guess there's two reasons. One of which was Johnson knew he wasn't going to have to stand for re-election in London uh, for a uh, third time. So he basically built as much as he possibly could. But Andrew Gilligan's role was very much as the kind of bad cop. And he would go from council to council and, you know, metaphorically, and who knows, in a couple of cases, literally twist arms until they agreed to, you know, let whatever bike route go through their local area. and. He was really, really good at it. He got a lot done. He did, you know, annoy quite a few people along the way. And, you know, I'm not an expert on how you particularly get bike lanes built. And if you talk to people about what Gilligan did, you know, you hear both sides. Some people say, well, he was great. He got stuff done. Other people said, you know, he could be a bit abrasive. He pissed a few people off. But, you know, the counter argument is you have the Sadiq Khan mayoralty now where they're very, very, very on board. Will Norman's enormously good and they're very kind of pro it. But, but things move a bit more slowly. Um, and my sense is that they've put Andrew Gilligan there because um, I think they, you know, it, 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 it remains to be seen. But some people inside Downing Street say that Boris Johnson is completely serious about this kind of public health agenda post-COVID. We have a lot more cycling and walking. And having Gilligan in Transport for London could be one of two things. It could be a sign that they really want him in there to kind of get stuff done quickly again. But the other side of it is that, you know, it kind of winds a lot of people up that London is now a kind of very Labour city. Uh, the Conservatives are not going to win the delayed mayoralty uh, uh, election, which is now put off till 2021. So it's a question of how they can exert influence over London. But I think it really, really remains to be seen. Some people in number 10 do say they're completely serious about this, about trying to, you know, have this transport revolution. But, you know, in the few months following the peak of COVID, not that much has happened really. So I think it's all to play for really. And the Gilligan thing is quite, you know, interesting because it shows they want direct control on, you know, one of the kind of bigger places. On the, on the politics side, Peter, there's, um, you know, there's all sorts of, um, bike clash. I hate using that word, but like bike clash on on stuff that's happening at the at the moment. Um, and it doesn't seem to be coming from 
um, a particular kind of political party because a lot of it's on a you know on a local level. But we're also seeing people like uh, Crispin Blunt, the MP for Rygate, kind of say you need to rip out this cycle lane in in my in my town. Um, but where it's his own government, you know, his own transport secretary, kind of putting in that mandate. Um, if you know, I'd be curious to get your views on, you know, the sort of political landscape for cycling at the moment um, in a nutshell, if that's uh, if that's possible. But also, could we see could we see a situation where, um, you know, uh, the Conservatives take cycling really seriously as we're sort of starting to see that they, they, they may do and almost with the kind of discussions we're having at the moment around the change of our streets, uh, Labour inadvertently start you know, opposing some of these measures as undemocratic because they need something to to oppose, whereas typically they've been quite supportive of cycling potentially. I don't think so. I think Labour are quite good. Um, Andy McDonald, who was the shadow transport secretary under Jeremy Corbyn, was actually really, really good. I mean, he was saying things that people would have wanted to hear from a Labour shadow transport secretary for years, basically saying, we have to have a conversation about how we have fewer cars on the roads. You know, he's quite open about that kind of stuff. And at local government level, I mean, it's very much a mixed bag, but a lot of the people at local government level who are good tend to be Labour people. Um, uh, weirdly, the Lib Dems at local levels can sometimes be quite bad. And the Conservatives are quite split because they've got a Prime Minister who is officially very, very pro-cycling, pro-walking, even if his policies remain to be seen. And you've got Andrew Gilligan in number 10, who's very, very passionate about that and has got a certain amount of power. But a lot of the kind of local comeback against bike routes has been coming from, as you say, conservative MPs like Crispin Blunt, but also kind of local conservative councillors. So, for example, in London, some of these kind of low traffic zones, when they put the modal filters in and block off residential streets, so uh, to you know, kind of try and cut off the uh, through traffic. Probably the worst opposition from those has come from local Tories, and some of them have openly organised and done kind of pamphlets under, you know, kind of local conservative associations saying this is wrong, it's a Labour mayoralty thing. And to an extent, it splits into the kind of politics, just the party politics. You've got a Labour mayor, and thus the Conservatives are going to are going to oppose it. And there are some really good people at local level in the Conservative Party, but there's not as many within Labour. Labour have had this very, very good Labour cycles kind of campaign which for the last four or five years has gone around basically educating local councils. You know, if there's a debate about bike lanes, then one of them will come in and talk to them and say, look, here's why as a Labour council you should be back here. And so there is this disconnect between the Conservatives at national level, at local level. But, you know, things are moving so fast, I guess that was always going to be the way. Um, Peter... I, I get, I get, I kind of wring my hands in despair at this, and uh, kind of drag Laura and Adam down with me from time to time when I, I feel them getting sort of too positive. Um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a worrier. I err on the side of pessimism a lot. And um, one of the things that really, really, um, <laughs> I noticed Adam and I were talking about um, a kind of really grinding Twitter fight that seemed to go rumble on to our, through our timelines, and I. I think I think Peter I think Peter was involved as well. Well, some of them were cab drivers, some of them weren't. Let's not let's not make assumptions, Peter. Um, uh, But 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 you know, so I um, 
I it just it strikes me that cycling advocacy seems to have been dragged into the, the wider culture wars. You know, it belongs with a set of values, and you're either one side of the fence or you're the other, and that's the way things things go. Is that the way that you see it? How did it get to be like that? And is that kind of? Do you think that culture war is replicated in um, other countries, or is this a very British phenomenon? I wouldn't say it's a British thing so much as it's a product of the fact that cycling for everyday transport is a pursuit not done by that many people. And thus, it's very, very easy to stigmatize people if you're not one of them and you know none of your loved ones or co-workers or kind of neighbours are. And obviously, in London and a handful of other cities, you know, maybe Bristol, Cambridge, Oxford and stuff like that, then cycling is a, you know, there's a reasonable number of cyclists around. But the overall kind of modal share for cycling across the UK is kind of what 1% to 2% and hasn't really gone up for the last decade or so. So I don't think it's necessarily culture in Britain. I just think it's a fact that, that not many people are cyclists or know a cyclist. And I think the only way it's going to get better is basically by having more people who are cyclists on the roads. It's harder to make a generalization about all cyclists being lawbreakers or kind of greenies or sandal wearers if you know the colleague who sits at the next desk rides a bike because then you know them as a kind of human being i think political debate in general is becoming more polarized and more tribal for all sorts of reasons whether it's connected to social media the rise of kind of identity politics like brexit and things like that um you know i don't think Britain is uniquely bad. Um, Australia is probably the worst place I've ever seen for it. If you talk to um, Australian campaigners, it's really, really dreadful. Um, the USA, outside of a handful of cities, is pretty bad too. Um, and, but it is slightly baffling because, because you know, there's not many kind of uh, uh, small, kind of very uh, heterogeneous groups about which it's kind of seen as okay to generalise. Um, and, and cycling is one of the kind of very, very few ones left. And like, even like vegans say, you know, like 10 years ago, people would always take the piss out of them. But now veganism is so popular. So if you make a kind of vegan joke at your work, then your kind of colleague's son might be a vegan and might kind of, you know. Uh, um, I think it's just going to take time. And, and right in the book, I talked to quite a few people about why there is this kind of outgrouping of, of, of people who ride bikes. And, you know, the answers were quite interesting. No one really knows. One of the issues is that that you know some drivers seem to see almost cycling as a kind of childhood thing that they might have only ridden a bike when they were a kid and they see it as this kind of fun leisure pursuit as opposed to the kind of grown-up business of driving a car and i think my personal view is it's quite frustrating if you're in a car particularly in an urban uh, area your progress is going to be fairly slow um and and you know, it's it's not the dream that the car adverts like sold you of kind of open roads and doing a constant 50, 60 miles an hour. And you see these people on a device which you know is pretty cheap and they're just sailing past you. And I think it must be quite frustrating, you know, and whenever I drive a car, which is not very often, it is an incredibly aggravating, frustrating experience. I think that just kind of builds up the resentment, you know, and I think people who dislike driving, and I think anyone sane probably would, has to find a reason for it. And they can either kind of come to the conclusion, well, you know, driving isn't as good as I, I was told it would be, or they can blame other people. And I think cyclists are an easy group to pick on. So you can say, well, there's congestion in my local area. That's because there's bike lanes. You know, it doesn't make sense, but, but you know, 
Sorry, that's quite a rambling answer. <laughs> um, I think the um, I think uh, the media also. I mean, we're both journalists. Peter, I think some of the media discourse that we see is is like very much firing, keeping these these flames kind of fanned, isn't it? It's it's you know there was something this morning about um, uh, there was a celebrity was caught behind the wheel. Or with a mobile phone and has been banned for yeah. been banned for six months and the, and there's some headlines from certain um, certain newspapers saying vigilante cyclist you know as if as if the driver is is just a, a mere uh, victim innocent victim in all of this you know he's driving a Land Rover on his and phone he had not, and he had nine points already didn't he yeah he was banned he's banned been caught speeding three times before yeah. But it's it's that kind of narrative, and and it's it's not even an English. I always thought I thought it was an English speaking country problem until recently. But I was speaking to someone from um, Italy, an academic from Italy, and she said they've got the same problem in the media there. It's and I wonder, you know, car advertising is a you know is a huge problem in in the newspaper industry at the moment. It has been for a long time. Advertising revenues are dropping. Car advertising still huge. So I mean, you do wonder if um, if if that can play a, a role sometimes. Um, yeah, I think it's just the assumptions that people carry with them. It's the same way that, you know, radio shows at 5pm are called the drive time show because the assumption is that everyone drives. And in most parts of the UK, outside of big cities, they, they, they generally do. So I think it's less a kind of particularly cultural thing or powered by kind of, you know, the might of the car firm. So I think that does play a play role. So much as just, you know, the media can reach for kind of um, easy generalizations. And if the bulk of your audience is going to be driving a car, then you kind of adapt to that mindset. Yeah, that's true. The, the thing that I, um, I've been reading about recently, and I'm probably a bit late to the party, but, um, I've been reading Carlton Reed's, um, the road was roads were not built for cars book. Oh, and, yes. um, that, I mean, I found that whole fascinating that the, you know, now we're very much in the say identity politics and tribalisms, whether we like it or, or, or not. And really the, 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 you know, the notion of that book is that, uh, cyclists and people driving cars were, were one of the same, you know, the editor of auto car magazine was also the editor of the cyclist magazine. Um, and, and, uh, there wasn't this kind of identity and actually it was cyclists who pushed for, you know, good roads and pushed for that movement. And a lot of the roads we drive on now, uh, you know, are there as a result of, um, uh, of originally cyclists wanting to have better quality, um, roads. So, uh, it, it's, it's very frustrating that it got to this. And I think, you know, I, I do, I, we were just talking, um, before you joined with about how, um, you know, sometimes part of the cycling debate comes quite polarized from the point of people who ride bikes as well, which I do think is um, a problem. And Ned's absolutely um, right to bring it, bring it on. And I think I've seen some discourse recently, which has been, um, you know, I think much, much more progressive in terms of um, very, you know, there's a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, X percent of British cycling members have cars. So cyclists are drivers and, and so on. And I think that's kind of, uh, you know, an extent on a small scale, but there's lots of people who, who use all modes of transport, who don't want to be defined by their, by their mode of transport. And, um, I think we, we, we're operating in a, in a conversation of absolutes, aren't we? You know, I must drive everywhere or I must cycle everywhere. And, and that's often, um, an assumption in this debate where it's just not true. Like I ride a bike loads, 
but I I have a car. We have one car between two of us in the in the family, and I you know I've used it three times this week. Um, it's just not not the case, and I think we need to get about that absolutism of what you are based on. You know, no one says, "Oh, I'm a busist" or anything like that. It just exactly. doesn't make any sense. I think sometimes it's just that the, the infrastructure isn't there for people to be able to do otherwise. So that, you know, you're driving around, like Peter said, you know, a lot of people living in uh, rural areas and, you know, there's not really many options. You've got either got a terrifying fast road by car or by bike or a poor bus service. But I think, you know, without the appropriate infrastructure, there aren't actually that many options. So you do end up just being a driver or, um, but talking of, of, um, books, Peter, are you, did I hear you writing a book? You've been writing a book? I've written a book. It's out in January next year. What is it? Tell us. Uh, the working title is The Miracle Pill. It's basically one of the chapters in the cycling book that I did was about the public health argument about how um, people living physically inactive lives is this kind of big unreported global crisis. Because, you know, everyone knows the recommendations. You should do your 150 minutes of, you know, moderate activity every single week. But, you know, the majority of people around the world don't do that. And there's all sorts of health consequences that come from that. And so I've written a book about that. Basically, how did we get to this point where the majority of the globe's population are living such kind of physically immobile lives that their long-term health, you know, is, is that there's very, very kind of grave risks and all the things that come from it. So for example, um, um, you know, the fact that if you speak to any public uh, health expert and a lot of NHS doctors, they will say that the kind of knock-on effect of this kind of stuff, it's connected to obesity and weight too, but it's a very, very separate thing, is you have a lot of people who have chronic conditions like diabetes type 2, and they're developing it quite early in their 40s. But um, medical advances means that they can often live until their 70s or 80s. And that kind of, you know, kind of people living for decades with increasingly poor health and list of conditions that need all sorts of medications is going to bankrupt the uh, NHS. It's a question of kind of when. And, you know, it's a kind of history lesson too as to how we got to this point and how it advanced very quickly the last, you know, 50 or 60 years. Um, and it's also kind of about, you know, things you might not think about, like the health perils of sitting, uh, sitting down too long. So for Part of the book, I borrowed this kind of research-grade activity track and this little tiny thing, which is about the size of plastic, tag weighs about four grams. You put it on your leg and it connects via Bluetooth. And at the end of each day, it gives you this kind of colored chart of what you've been doing all day. And I wore it for a few days at work and I was shocked at how much I sat down. You know, in a working day, I'd be sat in a chair for about eight hours, nine hours, often for two hours at a time without getting up. And even if you're active in other parts of your life that can be really quite bad for you it's shocking anyway, yes yeah so i got really into that so um it's a whole new book if you if you want to if you want to help the the nhs pay for your car parking and ride a bike well or <laughs> if you drive there then just maybe park uh half a mile away and walk in because you know even if you get because if you walk briskly which is not particularly fast if you do that for you know, 15 minutes say, a day, then, you know, or 15 minutes each way, then you're getting all the um, activity that you need. And the thing I found completely fascinating is that, you know, a lot of people don't do any kind of exercise as it was because it's difficult to find the time where this is all about kind of activity you fit into your everyday life. And it doesn't have to be strenuous. You know, the kind of dose response curve for being active is incredibly steep at the kind of lower levels. So, 
you know, it used to be that the advice was you have to get at least 30 minutes a day for it to do any good. But now the kind of advice is that even if you get 10 minutes every day, then your health outcomes are much, much better. Oh, well, really look, look, look forward to, um, definitely look forward to reading that, Pete. It's out in, out in January, did you say? It's out in January, yes. And it's called The Miracle Pill. It's called The Miracle Pill. It's got a subtitle that the publishers have added on, um, which I should be able to remember. It's something like Wine in Active World is Getting It All Wrong. Yeah, you have to have a you have to have a subtitle. Always. Every single factual book always has to have a kind of two or three word thing colon then the subtitle. Yes, Abs- absolutely, absolutely. I- I've written about five or six books, and I haven't managed to get a single title for any of my books over, over the line. The publishers have always had the had the last say on that. Um, just 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 to go back, it's pr- probably overstaying our welcome here. So we'll let you go in a second, but just to, just to go back to, um, your day job, uh, writing for the guardian. Now I notice, um, I'm a consumer of the guardian online and I don't tend to buy the newspaper. I'm sorry for that. Um, but I do notice, uh, from time to time, you are of all the team of journalists, the one who, who kind of, and, and Laura as well writes about cycling issues. Does that, do you ever look at the analytics or do your, do your, do your editorship um, sort of feedback that that does well? Like, is that a click, is that clickbait? Does that get a lot of traction? It does in general do really well. I mean, uh, the reason it's an entirely kind of self-appointed role that about literally about eight or nine or 10 years ago, me and a couple of colleagues were realizing that there was no coverage of everyday cycling in the paper whatsoever. Um, uh, there was obviously a lot on the sports side. But there used to be a kind of weekly column by Matt Seaton, who's now left the Guardian, called Two Wheels, which is about everyday riding. But that stopped. And for about a year or so, there was nothing. So we went to the web editors and said, you know, could we set up a bike blog? And they said, what? Bike blog? Do you think people would be really interested in that? And they initially thought it was kind of such a niche idea that they were going to kind of put it in this kind of other general interest blog. Um, but, you know, it got launched. Um, and, and it's kind of ticked over ever since then. And some of the stuff can do really, really, really well. I mean, we did a video about, so, cause, um, we also have a very good like video team and we sometimes do these kind of, um, explainer videos about, you know, why certain things kind of are the way they are. And we did ones about, uh, helmet laws and why bike helmet laws don't necessarily work, which would seem like a very kind of niche <laughs> kind of area. The last time I looked, it had something like 600,000 views or something like that. That's a good video. Um, and in terms of the bike blog pieces, we do have this kind of bespoke kind of internal software we can look at. I think every newspaper have got it. So you click on the story and you click on this button and it'll show you the number of views it has, who's tweeted it, the um, attention spans. It'll say, you know, the average person would take X minutes to read. You know, the average person spent like 14 seconds on this page or something like that. And <laughs> but, but the interesting thing is that, you know, what newspapers always used to be about was about getting as many clicks as you could, even if only there for a couple of seconds, that was all that mattered. But the Guardian got increasingly into the idea of readers really engaging with the story. And so this metric of how long the story was read became quite a kind of key one. And the bike plug pieces in general, I mean, some of them get read quite well. The really good ones can get two or 300,000 reads. But the metric of how much they're read, they're generally read almost all the way to the end and sometimes longer because people stay and read the comments and stuff like that. And that is partly because it's a subject people are necessarily interested in. But that's quite good because it builds up this community of people who are associated with the paper. And so the theory goes, are more likely to be loyal. And maybe, you know, when we hit financial trouble, you know, think about giving us some, 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 some cash. But those kind of things, it's, 
partly about the numbers, but also about, you know, how attached people feel to it. Well, great to have you on, Peter. Thank you so much. And we look forward to reading your book when it comes out in January. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Nice to, uh, nice to chat to you all. Keep up the good work, Peter. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. Well, that was nice. I'd never met, uh, I'd never met Peter Walker before. I mean, I've been consuming his words for years, uh, but I've never actually met him before. So, uh, he's, he's every, every bit as cogent and sensible and down to earth and, uh, as I had hoped. And, yeah. so, and he's right. And he's, and he, and he do, do you know what? He's right. He's right about the hospital yeah. parking, isn't it? Yeah. He, he, he didn't need to say much more than, um, that opening gambit of his, you know, that mm-hmm. the, the, the hospital down the road has got space for about 40 or 50 cars. Yeah. What happens when it's full? Yeah. It would be full by half past eight in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then everybody who thinks that they can rock up and get free parking would be queuing yeah. down the road going, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that's the, that strikes me as the most fundamental flaw yeah. in the plan. And that's just a handful <laughs> you know. of staff as well. Um, I was speaking to someone who um, who's a, a surgeon. She was saying that um, it's quite interesting that um, consultants traditionally would get their own parking space uh, when they when they reach that grade. And so it became this kind of thing to aspire to. It's a bit like how um, all doctors used to smoke. Um, and so, and so nobody really did anything about smoking, even though we knew it was really bad for us for ages, but, um, yeah, there was that, but uh, yeah, she, cause she works in surgery. She was also saying, you know, although, although we're treating these inactivity related disease, oh, diseases, what we're not treat, what we're not treating is or what we're not kind of counting is, uh, is the kind of falls that people are having earlier on and how frail they're becoming because they don't have the sort of muscles and the strength to, um, to sort of resist falls. Mm or to survive surgery. So what they do when they're, have, when they're doing surgery on someone is they'll, they'll say, how far can you walk? How many flights of stairs can you climb? And that basically predicts how well you're going to do um, if you were ever operated on. If you're operated mm. on. So yeah, it's, it's quite I think the public, health, the public health angle is really interesting. I look forward, I've read um, Peter's uh, first book and really look forward to, to, to reading yeah. the second. Um, I think yeah. just the, the thing that I took from that is that, you know, Peter, as you say, like I've kind of thought that we might end up talking for a long time about like hospital parking, and it would get particularly nuanced, and and maybe Same. you know we're we're kind of guilty of of being an echo chamber, and that's kind <laughs> of um, you know that's granted. But what I did, what I did sort of think is that people like Peter is so fortunate and and rightly deserve that Peter has an outlet to talk about these topics in in detail but in the kind of politics that we have now and the kind of discussions that we have uh, as I think you said Ned like we're we're just in kind of slogan territory aren't we really Um, and and there's no way you know Peter would go to a residence meetings I'm sure he does but you know I'd love to take Peter to a meeting you know, public meeting because he's the smartest guy in the room and he knows everything about all the stats. But you just got blokes just shouting. I'm going, what about the nurses? What about the nurses? Or, or, or whatever it, it might be. And that would be, you know, that would be very hard, as you say, to, 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 to go against, as you were talking about the low traffic neighborhoods, Ned, like to kind of go against those, those arguments. So, um, it, 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 it's a constant reminder, I think, that, um, what we're talking and advocating for on this podcast is is uh, is nuanced, and we could do well to, um, to 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 look at the you know look at the wider world and and the the, the narrative of politics and how we can um, make change while you know keeping our morals at the same time. Uh, I think. You, you know, I made that brilliant suggestion a couple of episodes ago that we should do something about walking. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think we all really enjoyed doing the walking the one. Walking one was great. I, I love that. Can I make, can I make another brilliant suggestion? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
can we do something about cargo bikes and humping great big yeah. lumps of machinery around yeah. on a bicycle? Yes. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, because I, I want one basically. Yeah, I want so the podcast fun. to be. I want the podcast to be so successful and get so many hits and downloads that um, one of the major manufacturers just rings me up and says, "Do you want a cargo bike?" <laughs> and I'll say, "And I'll say yes." <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my primary in, motivation. In, in the meantime, because that's you know sounds unlikely. Um, the, in the meantime, I, I have a cargo bike, which um, maybe when we're when we're you know allowed, can cycle to, down uh, from Coventry. Yeah, well, maybe maybe we could do a. Uh, uh, this is a crazy idea. Maybe we could do a little episode that in cargo bikes so maybe i ride around and ned can sit sit in it and we can sit in the front yeah, yeah and we can all just like ride around and i don't know what the tutorial <laughs> angle would be but i think it would be worth a tweet so, that um, would be amazing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but um, we should do some about cargo bikes there's some great stuff happening right right now with cargo bike logistics but also um you know i'm taking my kids to when i was taking them to school and taking them uh, on the cargo bike and and you know for our daily journeys they are just uh, brilliant and incredibly thought-provoking as well for the general public. So, um, yes, let's do that. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to do a quick shout-out because I met um, two documentary makers yesterday and one of them is doing a Master's at University College London. He said all of his um, all of his fellow students have been listening to the podcast. So, yeah, I just wanted to shout-out to the Master's in City uh, transport and city planning, uh, and that was John Surico and Angela Almedo. That Almedo, they're doing um, a documentary, "The End of the Line," which started off as like a New York um, story about the New York L train, which kind of got destroyed by Hurricane Sandy, and then it's widened out to the entire American uh, public transit system. And then it's come to they've come to London, and they're talking about London. So it's it's, it's quite, it's quite does, it sounds quite exciting. Does this mean we've uh, we've reached a certain level of I don't know, notoriety that we've got shout outs on the podcast. Is this a thing now? I think it's nice to do. I think it's <laughs> no, nice to do because otherwise it's like a one way street, isn't it? So yeah, it it's is. quite nice anyway, to like I'll, say hi to our listeners. I've got an incredible promotional idea. Um, if you uh, rate and review the podcast, uh, please leave a little comment because those reviews help the help the most and uh, tell us your tell us your shout out message and we'll include that and and connect with us on Twitter as well and Ned you won't be able to see because this is audio is waving his finger which means to wrap up so uh, Laura because it's bike racing on now okay yeah Ned's got to get back to the bike racing which is very exciting because it's back on finally it's back on and Ned's very happy uh, and we're all happy okay so uh, thanks everyone uh, thanks to Ned and Adam and thanks to Peter Walker you have been listening to Streets Ahead we are at Pod Streets Ahead on social media you can drop us a line let us know what you think and if you know others who like this podcast then please tell them um, and finally wherever you're listening please rate and review the podcast it means more people find us and you may get a shout out until next time bye bye Bye-bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.